This is Jim Semivan, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising, with 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them? Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's Creator Network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. Host-read ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's Creator Network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favourite creators like me. I've worked with Zencaster now for some time and they truly put the content creators and the listeners at the heart of what they do. As a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I really mean that, I love podcasts. I often buy products or services that I find useful to me based on those pods that I'm listening to. It supports them and there's usually a good discount to go along with it. So if you're interested in sponsoring this show or another podcast with adverts for your business, go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod one. That's the number one. Or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and this show is in conjunction with the upcoming Awakening Expo October 16th, 2022 at the Best Western Hotel Smokies Park Conference Centre, Ashton Underline. I am very fortunate to be the MC for that event and look forward to seeing many of you there who already have your tickets. If you haven't got your tickets yet, there are a limited number still available. The links in the description for this show have where you have to click and you can still by those. My guest today is the headline name in a fantastic lineup. He is an author, a New York Times bestseller, with several of those books going on to become successful movies, including the classic Communion, based on his own incredible yet terrifying experience. One of my most regularly requested guests, I'd like to finally welcome Mr. Whitley Strieber to the podcast. Whitley, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here and looking forward to October the 16th. Yes, it's going to be a wonderful day. And I'd also like to add that the the visitor's documentary about yourself and your story has just come out through the Travel Channel and Discovery Plus. And this gives an up-to-date revisiting of the events told by yourself. And I thoroughly recommend people check that one out. A heads up, if you are in the UK, at a Sky subscriber, you get Discovery Plus free for 12 months with your package. And I can tell you that the, the visitor's documentary is available on there too. If you don't mind, Whitley, before we start talking about your Awakening Expo appearance, can you begin giving as brief a recounting of your initial experience some 30 years ago for those who might not be familiar? Yeah, I I can certainly talk about it. First, uh, the book Communion has been republished just recently in uh, in a new hardcover and softcover with a new, brand new introduction to me by me. And an audio version as well. So it is uh, for the first time since the book was written. It is in a f- there's a full length audio version, and I I read it myself. All right. So let's go back now to 1985. It's the night after Christmas. Uh, we're living in a little cabin. It's our summer place in our holiday cabin in upstate New York. 
we have our home in Manhattan in uh, Greenwich Village in the south part of Manhattan Island and we are at the cabin we've been there for about a week it's been a lovely time uh, we had a beautiful Christmas we have a little boy my wife Ann and I he's seven years old and the night after Christmas we had a quiet Christmas dinner mostly of leftovers from the from the from the Christmas dinner and we took a walk and it was a lovely evening snowing slightly and very very quiet because the cabin was pretty isolated it wasn't in the middle of nowhere but it was pretty isolated and we we went to bed at about um, 10 I guess and I was sleeping normally until I noticed sounds and movement. And when I opened my eyes, I was shocked to see that I was not in anything remotely like my bed. I was in a strange space which looked to me like a tent. And there were these peculiar-looking creatures, uh, like big insects staring at me. And, of course, I assumed I was having some sort of a nightmare. And I tried to, to, to wake myself up. I couldn't do it. And the more I tried to wake up, the more real my surroundings became until it was obvious that I really was in this place. I began to scream, and I heard a voice, very gentle, sort of female, mechanical voice, start saying, what can we do to help you stop screaming over and over? Then uh, they, th there were two kinds there, these kinds with the big black eyes that you may remember on the cover of Communion, or if you go to Amazon or any of those websites, you'll see the, that same face on the cover of the book now. And... Uh, I uh, struggled mightily to, to get away from them. It was just appalling. I, I, I didn't know what to think of it. They raped me very forcibly with a machine that they had some purpose for that I, I'm, I've never been certain of, but it, it caused me to uh, have a sexual effusion. And uh, it was just... A complete invasion of my body and being. It was appalling. They stuck a needle into the side of my head. And then it went blank. I woke up the next morning feeling very poorly and very confused and very disturbed. And I asked my wife, if there had been someone in the house during the night, because I had traumatic amnesia, which is like the type of amnesia you have after a car accident or a plane crash or something. You can't put things together. And I knew something was very wrong. I th said to her, maybe an owl got into the house because I could remember these big black eyes. And of course, that was impossible because the house was closed up and there was no way for anything to come in. So. I struggled with this over the next few days, 
And about a week later, I went to my doctor and he told me that I had been raped after he examined me. And it was appalling. I mean, that was sort of the beginning of the rest of my life. And I didn't occur to me that it had anything to do with what people call aliens at all. I mean, that was the, that just simply wasn't something I thought about. I thought I was losing my mind. And the trauma caused me to have fights with my wife. And I tried to tell her that to leave me because I was afraid that if this happened again and I couldn't come out of it, I would be, her life would be ruined because she wouldn't be able to divorce me and she wouldn't have any income and she was trying to raise a child. So finally, uh, a further uh, visits to the doctor, I told him, I thought I had, I remembered being taken aboard a flying saucer by little men. And that was what, by that time, I had remembered most of it because in many cases, traumatic amnesia just wears off. And it did. And he, uh, we had further tests, uh, tests to be sure I didn't have a brain tumor or any other causative factor for hallucinations. And then I decided, well, maybe it's a crime has been committed of some kind. Maybe I was drugged by somebody because I was a fairly famous writer at the time. I'd written a book called War Day that had a lot of political significance, and it's quite possible someone might have assaulted me. Uh, so that was my approach. And I went to a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Donald Klein, who was an expert in forensic psychiatry. Uh, I mean, forensic hypnosis, which enables you to people to remember things like license plates that cars that have knocked them down and things like that. And he had quite a few, over 70 cases had been solved using his techniques of memory recovery. So I thought he was quite an expert. But when I went to him, all that happened was instead of this resolving into what we both thought would be some kind of a comprehensible thing, that maybe I could see things in my memory that would bring up useful evidence to tell the police I'd already been to the criminal investigation division in New York and they couldn't do anything because, you know, the, the investigator very gently put it, you have no evidence that we can work with when I described what I remembered. <laughs> I can't blame him for that. So uh, it just became more clear. And that was when the rest of my life began because I realized that whatever it was, they had been real. Whether they're aliens or not to this day, I don't know. But I, over the next few months, I decided, and my wife and I together, that my God, uh, you know, this is crazy. This must be, this is real. They're out there. And I, I, I even scary as they were, I started trying to re-engage with them because I thought it was the experience of a lifetime, an incredible thing. And I did re-engage with them. And that's when the rest of my life, I'm still engaged with them. I've written many books about them, with them, and I'm writing one about them now. It'll be out before Christmas, I hope. I'm, I, they are 
they have become very much part of my life. Do you feel that initial experience opened the door, so to speak, on, on those later experiences being possible? Or was it something you feel was always planned for you? Well, that's a good question. I have remembered things, I think, from my childhood. I think this happened to me in my childhood. But, you know, memory is, people say, well, memory is very plastic. No, it's not plastic. I know more about memory than most people. Memory is fluid. It's really fluid. You can make yourself remember anything. You just, it's very suggestible and fluid and very hard to be definite about. So I can't be sure, but I do have the definite feeling. And there is some, there are some evidence that this happened to me in my childhood. So I wrote a book about that called The Secret School. And I believe that, that yes, uh, it may very well have happened to me in my childhood. And so, and, and that would not be unusual because many close encounter witnesses have the same experience that this is something that has been with them all of their lives. And they often don't realize that until they have an experience in adulthood. You, you often hear there's a, a generational link that it can also be potentially passed on through families. Was that ever something you investigated or looked into if, if others in your past had had similar experiences? Well, oddly enough, that came to me very unexpectedly. My father, or my father's brother, was in the Air Force in 1947 when the famous crash at Roswell occurred. And after I published the book, he telephoned me. He, he was then living in retirement at a, at a retirement, Air Force retirement center in uh, San Antonio, Texas. And he telephoned me and said, I would like you to come down and talk about your book. And I thought, well, he's been in Air Force intelligence all of his life. Nobody knows a darn thing about what he did in the family except possibly his wife. So, yes, I would be interested in talking to him. I'd, I'd, in all the years I'd known him, I'd have, he's ne literally never said a word about his work. All we knew was that he was, he was um, detailed to the Atomic Energy Commission for many years. So I went down to Texas, and we had lunch at his retirement home. And he proceeded to say, my wife was there and his wife, that he had been in the Air Materiel Command at Wright Field in 1947. This is the command where they gather all kinds of material from fallen aircraft and so forth and study it. And he said, we were delivered material from a spaceship that had crashed in near Roswell, New Mexico. And I just want you to know I and most of my friends who are aware of this think there is really something in your book, Communion. You really have had this experience, and you question it very much in the book, and that's good. But I want you to know that I have had an awareness of this all of my career, and I want to introduce you to someone who knows more than I do. And he proceeded to introduce me to the retired commander of what it was then called Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, General Arthur Exum. 
And General Exxon told me that every, and this is a quote, everyone from Truman on down knew that what we had found at Roswell was not of this world within 24 hours of our finding it. And he told me about the materials that they had found. He told me about the bodies that they had recovered. And it, it was a remarkable series of conversations. So that's, at this point, I would say that it looks as if there is someone here from another world. And now that the Navy, U.S. Navy, has finally admitted that at least some UFOs are genuine unknown objects, a person like me has to think, well, what's, where's the other shoe going to drop? Because obviously someone's coming out of them. And I've been face to face with them many times. So that's where this stands really at the moment. For me, when it comes to your case particularly, the hypnotic regression tapes set aside for many others because that's not a piece of evidence you hear very readily at all. Um, you can hear the tapes on your site, unknowncountry.com. I'll have the link for that in the show description. And what really struck me is hearing the, the genuine terror and fear, as you recall the experience and the, the scream you make is really horrifying. In the recent documentary, The Visitors, you struggle to listen back to the tapes yourself. Is the, is the regression something you regret doing now, or are you happy you've done it? Uh, the documentary, yes. I'm very happy I did the documentary. It, it came out really well. They were sensitive to the material, and they did an excellent job. However, I want to warn everyone listening to this that listening to those tapes should not be, don't have your children in the room when that happens. Because you've not heard, believe me, human terror that intense in your life. I, I guarantee it. Because it doesn't get that intense. Uh, not even when we're in a, a truly desperate situation. Because there's a fear associated with this that is more than the fear of death. And I was experiencing that fear, especially in the first hypnosis session. I was reliving that fear. and. You know, I'm not alone in this. There were witnesses, numerous witnesses at the cabin, and the documentary has a lot of them on the documentary. I mean, they're still alive. So, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, this is a, not an isolated experience with one person having something all by himself at all. It's And, and also, th there are thousands and thousands of other people, maybe some of your own listeners, who've had the experience. So it's 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 definitely not isolated and not what they call anecdotal, where it's just one story. It's Let thousands of stories. Babbel is one of today's sponsors, and they are the best way for you to begin to learn a new language. Immersing yourself in the language of your choice from day one through a whole range of learning styles, including podcasts, games, and online classes. It's available on desktop or through their app, Babbel's courses are created by didactics experts and focus on real-life situations. So if you're holidaying in France and spot a UFO, you can get locals' attention quickly and efficiently. The lessons are as short as 15 minutes and fit into any schedule and can be downloaded to work on offline while on the go. 
With the help of everyday dialogue exercises and the speech recognition software, learners can practice their pronunciation and regular vocabulary repetition ensures that what is learned is memorised over the long term. I can already hear some of you listeners getting in touch to tell me I should really learn English given my dodgy accent. When you buy a six-month subscription to Babbel, you receive six months extra for free by using the code zen.ai forward slash UFO Babbel. That's U-F-O-B-A-B-B-E-L. Pay for six months and learn for a whole year. Get info and redeem the code at babbel.com forward slash audio. Folks, today is the day you finally decide to make a life-changing decision and learn that new language. It certainly is. Let me ask you on that. I recorded with Jim Semivan just last night and he speaks very highly of you, Mr. Strieber. Um, I asked him this question that I'd like to ask yourself. What advice do you want to give to anyone listening who does have those similar experiences like yourself, but they're not sure where to go with them? Well, there are some um, some resources developing uh, there's a group called the Experiencer Group, which I believe you find at experiencer.org. Uh, but if you put in Google the UFO Experiencer Group, you'll have their you'll find their correct uh, um, their correct address. And there are people involved in that who there are professionals involved in that who will help people. Uh, there are other groups, I'm sure. I think the Mutual UFO Network has a group. I don't know of groups that are specifically UK-based, although there may be some. I'm not sure. And what they're trying to do is basically give people a place to communicate with each other and to interact with professionals of various kinds if they want to, but to deal with trauma. Uh, And that's a start. But it's only a start. There's so much more that needs to be done. We, we need to get to a point where the government's involved, and that is primarily the United States government, the UK government, the Australian government, and the Canadian government. Uh, and to a less extent, it's true in Italy and uh, France. You don't hear too many stories of this happening in Spain or Germany, and it could be just a cultural thing that people don't talk about it, or they have a different vision of it. But it's time for us to try to heal this enormous wound, because all these thousands of people have had this experience and been laughed at and scorned if they come out in public. Every effort has been made to make them look ridiculous. Uh, when I it was early on, I my rape was turned into an international joke because I described at one point in the hypnosis session the instrument that had been used to defile me as a rectal probe, and that became a meme. And I found I had the experience of living with my own experience of rape being something that people laughed at. I still do live with that. And that's a very hard thing, and it's an awful thing to do to someone. And 
the this group of people, the close encounter witnesses, are the last group of people in our society who can safely be bullied and 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 oppressed because of what they say they have experienced. We don't do that anymore, but in this case, yes, it's okay. It shouldn't be. That's a very true point, and it's, it's very unfortunate as well. And, and for any new listeners coming on, I've interviewed several members of the Experiencer group, including J. Christopher King and a few more. So if you want to listen back to those, the, I allowed those individuals to come on and share their stories, much like yourself. And I'll put those details for the group in the link as well, if anyone does want to, to reach out regarding their experiences. Your story, Whitley, is one that has resonated now for more than three decades why do you think your story particularly caught people's attention the way it did and still continues to be one that's talked about um, above many, many others? Well, it was the first time anyone had sat down and written about it in quite the way that I did. Uh, my wife, Anne, was a very, very fine editor as well as being a writer herself. and she made sure that the book kept the questions open and it wasn't uh and it was also well researched in the sense that it makes sense it it's it's not kind of off the wall it, you know it 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 all makes a certain amount of sense and uh it, it really struck a chord with people for the reason, for that reason, I, that that it's powerful and makes good sense, and at least I hope it does. And also, the the uh, face on the cover of the book is a powerful mnemonic device. I did not know that at the time. But millions of people on seeing that face remembered, my God, that happened to me. I thought that was some kind of a nightmare. And that changed everything. It changed the world, actually. It made the closer encounter experience part of our culture rather than some isolated thing that the government might like us to believe. It's just a few nuts who believe things like that, when the truth is it's a fairly commonplace human experience. And can you imagine this experience has been with us, we know of, for at least 40 years. Thousands of people in the US, the UK, all over the world have had this experience. And many, many have expressed themselves publicly in different ways. And no health authority, not the U.S. Center for, Centers for Disease Control or any of the other health authorities, have lifted a finger to look into the lives of these people. Not a finger. No effort has been made to determine what this is from a mental health viewpoint and a physical health viewpoint. And it does affect both your mental health and your physical health. And that's not an accident. It's purposeful. Someone suppresses the health uh, community and prevents it from, from 
examining this, or it would have already happened. Can you foresee a time where that changes? Not now. Uh, we had a door open to crack when Leslie Keene and Kane, excuse me, in 2017 and Ralph Blumenthal and published that story in the New York Times about the Tic Tac UFO. And then eventually the U.S. Navy admitted that it was an unknown. But now the U.S. Navy is saying, we don't have any intention of releasing any more UFO video. This is finished. It's all, it's all secret. And that secrecy is like a cancer. It's, it's a disease that, the, that these governments have. It's not healthy. I, years ago, there was a wonderful guy who's a very eccentric fellow, political fellow in the United States. You've probably never heard of him. His name was Norman Thomas. And I was listening to one of, at one of his lectures one time and listening to him talk. And he said, where the secrets start, the republic stops. And he could broaden that to say, where the secrets start, freedom stops. And that's why you see these oppressive governments, uh, China or Russia or any of those dictatorships, Iran, they're all obsessed with secrecy. They hide everything. And the Western governments need to, if they are really serious about being governments of free people, they need to let us be free and make our own choices and decisions. And we can't do that without information. And I'm not just talking about the UFO phenomenon. There's so much more that's kept secret. It's an obsession. It's a, it's a neurosis or even a psychosis of government. They have to face the fact that the people have a right to know and they can't think clearly enough to be really free and cast their votes in a proper way unless they know what their world actually is. And we don't. It's kept from us. It's hidden. Are you aware of or do you think there are people like yourself on the inside of government who have had similar experiences to yourself involved in either trying to get this out or trying to keep it secret? Oh, sure. I know lots of people behind the secrecy barrier, uh, and I know some of their stories. I assume no one's ever told me any classified information. But yes, you mentioned Jim, Jim Semivan. He knows a lot of that information, I'm sure. Uh, but and I know that these people would like to step forward. I know some that aren't known in the public in any way who wish they could step forward and who feel terrible regret about it. Uh, General Exon felt regret about it. That's why he opened up and talked at the end of his life and even left an inter a brief interview with a couple of Roswell UFO investigators, Donald Schmidt and Kevin Randall, for one of their books. And got in trouble with the Air Force about it. They were very angry with him. Uh, so yes, that I would like, and I would like to see some of the people come out who are behind the scenes and know so very much about this. This is this is a big thing behind the scenes. It's not a small backwater. the The core of much of our technological development 
especially when it comes to metallurgy, rests in this. This has been a huge boon for the development of metals and materials. And, and I would assume not only in the West, but in other areas as well. And they have been bled out into, I would assume, into medicine where ultra hard metals can be used in prosthetics like artificial knees and things like that. They have been bled out into uh, aerospace where uh, materials that have very high levels of heat absorption and low levels of friction generation and things can be used to make extremely fast aircraft. And there's all sorts of things that have been done. But it's all behind this wall of lies. Think if someone like Stephen Hawking had been able to really seriously think about this and know what these that what these people were describing was real. What a mind like that might have been able to do with this material. Or the great, uh, the, the whole uh, anthropological community, the sociological community, the community of psychiatrists and psychologists and neurologists, they could all be brought into understanding this through the medium of what is available which is the witnesses themselves. Uh, you know, my wife, Anne, back, she's passed on. Back in the old days, we were getting tens of thousands of letters in great bags every day being brought up to our apartment and poured on the floor in heaps. And I was overwhelmed. I, I, this is after the book came out. I couldn't imagine what we would do. And she said, well, we're going to read them. I said, you can't read all those letters. I said, we can't read all those letters. And she said, well, you might not be able to, but I can't. And she hired a secretary and they read them. They cataloged them. They numbered them. They organized them by the thousands. And now they are in an archive at Rice University in Texas, a big American university, very rich university beautifully archived and there for scholars and 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 of all kinds to read and make use of the whole secret of contact lies in that archive saved by Anne Streber thank the lord she had the foresight she said one day Whitley these will be useful and they are now in fact, the book I'm writing right now is called Them, and it's a personality profile, if you will, of the visitors through the medium of how they have interacted with us over the years, and I use those letters at the core of it. And did your wife, and that's fantastic work that she she done before she passed, did she see or talk about any particular pattern that she noticed through those thousands of letters, anything that would come up constantly? Not really. Um, she did feel that it had something to do with time. And she was ex 
my wife was extremely smart. She was the smartest person I've ever known. And she said that she thought it had something to do with movement through time. And for that reason, it was going to stay out of focus and ambiguous. And we were going to have to work very hard to make sense of it. And she explained to me why this would be the case, that if someone was looping back through time and trying to affect their own past, they would be under enormous restraint constraints. And in order to, because you, you can't violate something called the grandfather paradox and the universe won't let you change your past, in other words, essentially. But there's ways out. And she understood the physics of that. I don't. Uh, but I wouldn't say that there was like, all everyone saw the same belt buckle or something not at all the experiences are really complex and and very uh different i guess there's one thing many of them did see those big black eyes you know let me are we on video or audio um it'll be on audio and video so both yeah oh well good well for those on video here's something you might be interested in seeing this is the original painting. I'm, what I, for those on audio, what I'm doing is I'm holding up a framed painting of the one of the, of the visitor with the big eyes that you've seen on the cover of Communion. Just to show you, this is the original painting that was done with me sitting beside the artist, Ted Seth Jacobs, and, and telling him exactly what to do as we worked along together. So I thought you'd like to see that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I'll try and get a screenshot of that to put on the social media as well for, for those who listen via audio so they, they can see that too. The the idea, Whitley, of time playing a huge part in this and the idea that, for example, someone like yourself who may have had experiences in childhood and then in later life multiple times, maybe these beings, for them it happens over the space of half an hour, but for you it happens over 50 years that they, they yes. jump in and out. And and part of your talk at the Awakening Expo on the 16th of October is how these beings have come back into your life in later years afterwards. Is that something you can expand on and give the listeners an idea of what you're going to be talking about? Well, I'm going to be talking about, among other things, communicating with them and what it's like. Because in 1989, this object that I'm touching, for those who... Are, are listening rather than watching, I'm touching the back of my left ear where I can feel a little bump. That is an object that is a, I use for communication with the visitors, and I can, I'm going to go into, in the lecture, exactly how that works and precisely what it, it does, because I know it well. I've used it in the writing of numerous books, and it is a, a marvelous research tool. The people who don't know really much about these things always say, well, it's a tracking device. And I, I said to Anne that when I first got into my ear and I, I felt it there, I, I wanted to take it out immediately. I was very upset about it. And she said, no, no, don't take it out. Let's see what it does. And... I said, well, wait a minute. It's it's probably watching me and tracking me. And I that's horrible. I, I don't want that. And she said, Whitley, nobody cares 
when you go down to the shop to get a six-pack of beer. No one cares. No one from another world cares in any way where you go and what you do. You don't have any secrets. I don't want to insult you in any way, but frankly, your life is very plain and uninteresting. So it's got to have another purpose. And it took me many years to understand its purpose and to use it. It turns out to be an extraordinary research tool. And in the lecture, I'm going to go into exactly more about how it works. And I'm going to show uh, uh, images of it uh, taken with a CT scanner and so forth. And also a video of the moment the, the, a doctor did try to remove it because I wanted it out. It was driving me crazy. And in 1992, I said to Anne, I've got to try to get it out. And she said, okay, we'll compromise. You get one chance. If you get it out, you get it out. But she knew so much about this stuff. She knew it wouldn't succeed, I think. And indeed it didn't. And you can see the video of her and the doctor together at the moment they open the ear and see it, and then what happens? You'll see that too. I've also got some of the best video, of UFO video, in private hands. You know, they always say, oh, the video is, it's all blurry or it's obviously a fake. I have some video that's not blurry and is not a fake, and I'll show that as well. It's been a tough few years for many of us, juggling a lot that life has thrown our way. As someone with a young family, finances have never been more important, especially with the soaring cost of living day to day. That's where Credit.com can help. There is a way you can begin to take back some control of your financial situation. Extra Credit is a product from Credit.com that gives you unmatched credit coverage. You might have checked your credit score on a free app then when trying to make a purchase on credit, like a car, found it wasn't quite what you expected. Extra credit from credit.com gives you access to all 28 FICO scores to see exactly what lenders will see. Extra credit not only gives you access to those 28 FICO scores, but also helps guard your identity with $1 million ID insurance, dark web scans, and data breach alerts. Plus, you can get cash rewards for selecting personalised offers. As someone who, as a student, racked up a lot of debt, I can relate to having to rebuild my credit score as an adult. There's no better time to do this than now. The past can't be changed, but you can begin to rebuild your future today. To sign up for extra credit, go to credit.com forward slash that UFO and get started there. To sweeten the deal, you can even get the first seven days absolutely free. It's just $24.99 plus tax a month after the free trial. You can cancel any time. So go check out extra credit today and start working on your credit goals. I look forward to seeing that and I'm sure the, the listeners that attend will too. And many of those listeners who don't get to attend or haven't got to speak to you personally have sent in questions and in the time remaining, I'd love to get through some of those if you don't mind. Um, sure. The questions are quite varied as well, so we'll we'll get straight into them. Um, the first question, Whitley, is from DMAX and he asks, or they ask, what does Whitley think the connection between the phenomena and religion is? Are the hitchhikers and poltergeists the same thing as demons and possessions to the Catholic Church? Well, that's a huge, complicated question. This is intimately integrated into the religious experience around the world. In fact, next week and the week after on my, my podcast, Dreamland, 
I'm going to be talking about that with uh, some experts. Uh, Diana Walsh Pasulka, who wrote American Cosmics, you may have had her on your show. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Kripal and uh, another extraordinary expert who is not well known, John Santos. And we will be we're talking about that very subject, but to try to look at this through the lens of religious experience is a significant mistake. In other words, to try to see it in the context of, well, I believe in God, in demons and this and that, and these must be demons because of what they do is a mistake. Uh, we're looking at something much different from that. Uh, they are very difficult to deal with, believe me. And I'll tell some hair-raising stories about that. But we have to see this more clearly than the various religious contexts allow us to. The Christians would say they are angels and demons. The Muslims would say they are jinn of various kinds. Other religions would say other things. And these are all in some sense true, but each one limits itself to the channel of that set of beliefs. And yet each one obviously has some truth in it. So, you know, what you, what you come to there is you have to look at it in the context of all of these religions and try to see it more objectively than that allows. And then you begin to get some idea of something true. No, I like that. Um, and on a similar vein, Jessica asks, does Whitley think there is any danger in humans initiating contact with these beings? I think the danger is extraordinary. I think it's extraordinary on a personal level. I think, but more importantly, on a social level, it's extraordinary. Uh, look at the, 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 you know, we have history on our planet of what happens when a technologically superior but ethically indifferent culture comes into contact with a, an inferior one, a lot of it. The whole of the Western world did that. Uh, the, when the Spani Spaniards arrived in Mesoamerica and Peru, within a few years, those populations had plummeted and their, and their cultures of thousands built up over thousands of years were completely destroyed. Uh, and when the British, the Dutch, the French, to a lesser extent, the Germans, the Portuguese, and to some extent, the Spanish spread out across the world in, to colonize it, all of those cultures received tremendous shocks. And even when it is attempted to not shock the cultures, it happens. And it, it uh, I think our visitors are being, one of the reasons that the secrecy is so great, because remember the secrecy might, our government might, governments might be very secretive, but the secrecy really starts with them, doesn't it? Because they could come out and be known, make themselves known publicly, probably in five minutes. 
but they don't. Therefore, their secrecy is also part of their policy. And why would that be? That is, I think, primarily because of the fear of cultural colonization, that we will immediately, as soon as they show up, we will refocus our entire culture toward them, and we'll end up like the peoples of so many different areas in the world when the British showed up or the French or the Europeans in general showed up, they suddenly felt very, they felt like idiots. You know, what are these ridiculous gods we have? Here they are with these ships and wonderful knives and all kinds of guns and all kinds of fabulous stuff. And we're, we're doing, dealing with stone axes. Obviously we've got the wrong gods. And, and, uh, you know, and, and so they abandoned their cultures. And you see the results of that in, uh, in like in American Samoa, which, uh, which has got a very high rate of alcoholism, and alcoholism is endemic throughout the Canadian and Ameri- and, and 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 U.S. indigenous communities because they feel disenfranchised. We're going to have the same thing happen on a massive scale if they come out in the wrong way. No, I, I like that point. It's very well made as well. Um, Kerry asks, do you think when we die, we go on to exist in a different state to our known physical selves and that we share that environment with life that once existed physically elsewhere throughout the universe? After my wife Anne died in August of 2015, she immediately returned very clever ways that had been prearranged. And to be specific, she came back to friends who had not been told of this arrangement, that she would, the arrangement was that the first of us who died would come back, not to the other one, but to friends and tell the friends to communicate. And that happened, started happening an hour and a half after she passed away and it happened for a couple of weeks thereafter. And I did succeed in getting into verifiable communication with her. And I wrote a book about it called The Afterlife Revolution. I wrote it with Anne. And Anne is, as she put it right after she passed away, I'm not Anne anymore, but I will be always be Anne for you. And if you think about the fact that, and I think it is a fact, that we have lived many lives, who is living those lives? It's not you or me. We're only here for one life, but someone else is living the lives. And whoever that is, is who we become once again after we pass away. And then we may go on to return to this world or another world, quite possibly. Uh, or not to return at all. But Annie is still so much with me that I consider us to be two souls with one body left only. And to honor that, I wear both her wedding ring and my wedding ring side by side on my left hand. She's on my pinky because she's, her wedding ring is much too small to be on my my ring finger. But to honor that. And uh, she is very, very engaged in my life. 
and in the lives of many people. And uh, she, before she died, she in in January she died in August in January without my knowing what she was doing. She started the process of creating an avatar that could be recognized after she died by anyone who knew about it. Uh, it's a white moth. And what happened was she began saying to me that I had to memorize a certain poem called Song of the Wandering Angus by W.B. Yeats. And when I failed, because I'm not good at memory, she cried. And she was already quite sick then, but we didn't see her death coming, certainly. I didn't, I and mean, she did, but I didn't. And so I did memorize the poem. And one of the lines in the poem is, when white moths are on the wing and the moth-like stars are flickering out. That phrase, white moths, is important. And after she passed away, this house, as you may imagine, somebody like me with all these experiences, is filled with cameras. I've, I'm, I live in a sea of cameras I have for years. I've never gotten any visitors on them, but I certainly try. In any case, I was at a convention, and this strange thing, one of the cameras started reporting activity, and I looked, and there was this moth flying around in front of the camera. And I thought, how odd, how odd that a moth would be there, and how odd that it would just fly back and forth in front of the camera. What could be going on in my house? When I came back, there were no moths. There was nothing, no sign of anything. This happened a number of times. And finally, someone said to me, well, you know, Whitley, uh, I have a feeling that moth has some psychic significance. And then I remembered the poem, The White Moths. And then I remembered the critical thing. Her favorite short story of mine had been called The White Moths. And it's about an old woman who dies and it and is in the process of discovering that she has died. And then the white moth became very organized. And it it would show up like I was telling my son about the white moth one day before Christmas, on the on the day before Christmas, a few weeks after this started. And I was at his house, in, which is another part of California, and the camera suddenly sent a signal saying it was seeing movement. And when we looked, there was the white moth flying back and forth in the front of the camera while I was telling him about it. And then I, I was at a conference, a big conference, of scholars and academics and scientists, and explaining the white moth and the whole story of Anne's afterlife experience and so forth with them. And right in the middle of this conference, a white moth appears in the conference room and begins to fly around the conference room. And everyone is clapping and cheering, of course, because it's in a situation where it couldn't have just appeared. And then not only that, it lands on the head of a man called Jeremy Vaney, who was a podcaster, who was a great favorite of Anne's. And so I take a picture of the white moth sitting on his head and it flies up, flies into the middle of the room and just evaporates just before all of our eyes. It was remarkable. So that tells me this, there is an afterlife questioner and I've told you all I know about it, which is more than most, I think at this point. 
as to the details of where we go and what it may be like, that is behind the veil for me still. I appreciate you talking out richly about your wife as well. And I spoke to my wife just before coming to record this and I told her about your, your story of the pact you had with your wife and and she was telling me she it gave her a little bit of com- comfort, the idea that there is something after, but the idea also still scares her slightly that, that things continue. So she wasn't too sure what to think of it, but thanks for, for sharing that story. Um, sure. A couple of questions uh, to finish off. One from Brian. Brian asks, are abductions or engagements like this still happening in the world as frequently from what you've heard or know? It seems like abduction cases have fallen off. And why do you think that may be? I think that the abductions were a collection effort. They collected sexual material and probably DNA. And not just from us. I think they probably collected it from animals and plants too. I think they probably made a, 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 a kind of a library of life on Earth. And it seems it started back in the 1960s, in the late 1960s, and went up through the mid-1990s and dropped off after that. And I think it was basically a scientific effort. And I think it was done because they believe that life on this planet has a limited future. They've been warning about climate change from the very beginning of my experience. And that's true in the lives of many, many close encounter witnesses. And yet we live in a world where it's considered unimportant and it's denied. But in Europe right now, uh, to a lesser extent in the UK, there's a catastrophic drought. There's a catastrophic drought in the Western United States. floods and inundations, the climate is in upheaval and that will only get worse. So they were right. And I think that they, this is insurance so that there will be a record of us after we're gone, if we go. And I think that is still very much an open question. And one final question from Tim. He asks, uh, please ask Whitley about his time with the Bledsoe family. Why, in Whitley's opinion, is their case so unique? The Bledsoe family? Yes. Uh, Well, I don't talk much about personal things. You'd have to ask Chris Bledsoe that question. Uh, But I do think that some, some cases, if you... If you notice this and then turn toward it, it is going to notice you and turn toward you. And that is quite a familiar pattern in all of the people who have had extensive close encounters, mostly occasionally there are people who they just won't leave alone, but mostly there are people who basically turn toward it like I did or, and others have. Uh, and when you turn toward it, it turns toward you. That's essentially it. But I, but to, I, I would prefer not to discuss specific people. 
No, that's fine. Uh, hopefully, Mr. Bledsoe is going to be on the podcast uh, later in the year with his book, UFO of God, due out. So I'm in the queue for an interview there. So fingers crossed that one that one comes through. Um, Whitley, you've been wonderful with your time. Uh, apologies to those who I couldn't get to your questions, um, but I'm very much looking forward to meeting you and the other guests at the Awakening Expo, October 16th, 2022, at the Best Western Hotel, Smokies Park Conference Centre in Ashton Underline. The tickets are still available and the link is in the description. I would encourage you, if you can, to get yourselves along. It's going to be a wonderful day. And Whitley, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Well, thank you. And I'm very open. You know, don't be afraid to approach me. I'll be there with a bunch of friends and we expect to have a lot of fun. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Meditative game of state full on meta. I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. the window after the elf and I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red and I helped out my boys they thought this was noise they thought it was a dream they thought it was my toys they thought it was my problems and they think I should seek therapy and I don't know what it is because it doesn't really scare me
That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more.